So much for the Braves defending their title and the Dodgers' 111-win regular season. Go up in smoke as the Phillies and Padres move on to the NLCS. Now we're waiting for a winner-take-all in the Bronx tonight when the Guardians and Yankees will square off to see who the Astros will meet in the ALCS. Break up the Jets and Giants as both teams have been big surprises of this NFL season to date. I'll have my winners and losers of Week 6. Down goes Alabama as they lose in a wild slugfest in Knoxville. What does this mean for them and the rest of the playing field when it comes to the college football playoff? The NBA season tips off tomorrow night as I'll preview the upcoming campaign with storylines and predictions as to who will be in the NBA Finals. In the middle of a great sports month with tons to dissect, it's all coming up. But first, this message. What has happened to my good people? Thank you so much for passing by to... Listen to me wax poetic as I talk about anything and everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm on all available platforms. You can also go to the website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. All I want to do is increase the visibility of this podcast, so please throw me a few stars, write a review. It will go a long way into getting the word out. Even take a screenshot, send it to your friends, send it to me on social media. I'm more than happy, willing, able, and open to get your feedback on what it is that you enjoy most about the J Reels Podcast. So with that being said, let's hit it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J. Rose Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits. It's been a wild ride over the past few days in the sports universe, and I'm glad you've hopped on board to get plenty of insight, analysis, critique, and praise as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who've been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And yes, in the middle of that said month, October, with so much that's taken place, lots to get into, lots to dive into. Yes, we'll cover all the football, whether it's the NFL or college, an NBA preview, which is here tomorrow night, the new season where the Golden State Warriors will raise their Fourth banner in the last eight years to the Rafters at the Chase Center against the LA Lakers, where the Celtics will tip off against the Philadelphia 76ers. All that a lot later on in the podcast, but I have to start off with the baseball because tonight there's a game five in the Bronx between the Guardians and Yankees, which I'll touch on in a second. But what we've seen here over the last few days, it's almost inexplicable. But then again, this is the reason why we watch sports. By all means, we have to give the Phillies and Padres their props and all the credit in the world. But when we look at what had taken place and to think that you had the Dodgers who had a killer regular season 
and we've talked about this as one of the big storylines heading into this round, how for everything that they've done and for them to have such a cushy lead and not play a pressure game up until this past weekend showed that they were not ready for primetime, showed that they were, not to say unprepared, but the blitzkrieg that the Padres, their team, fans, etc., this was something that they were waiting for quite some time. And I understand that it was a little bit of a buzzsaw that they went into, not to say that the Padre fan is the Red Sox fan, Yankee fan, Met fan, Philly fan, etc. But the town, and I'm sure the team was waiting for this because they knew that they had this big giant piano on their backs, knowing that the Dodgers had taken care of them 14 out of 19 times this year, beaten up on them even last year in the division series in 2020, that it all culminated with the momentum that they got from the wild card round against the Mets into this series to the point to where they won three straight after losing game one, beating Kershaw in game two, and then what we saw over the weekend where the Dodgers couldn't get a hit to save their life, especially in a big spot with runners in scoring position. And Tony Gonsolin, I get it. He was only supposed to pitch two innings. He's coming back from injury, so on and so forth. But he couldn't even get out of the second inning when you think about it because he had nothing. He did have a good curveball, but he was leaving everything over the plate. And here are the Dodgers with a lot to answer to, considering that for everything that they've done, and I felt that for them to win a World Series this year was going to be big to piggyback of what happened a couple of years ago, and that World Series was legit no matter how you want to cut it. I know the COVID-shortened season, 60 games, they did have to go through an extra round in the postseason in order to get to where they had to go. And remember, they didn't have any home games. They didn't even have crowds for most of these games until the latter part in the LCS and in the World Series where they had, what, 10,000 fans at Globe Life Field. But for them to just spit the bit, for them to just collapse, and for this to unfold the way it did, I'm sure the Dodger fan goes into this offseason not only asking themselves, what do we do to get better, considering they won 111 games, but to lose in the division series after having that type of year, it's inexcusable. Very shocked to see, and again, give the Padres all the credit in the world. They got the big hit when needed. Obviously, Jake Cronenworth, who had a terrible wild card series against the Mets, bounced back, hitting a home run in this series, including the big hit where I don't know what happened when the reliever Vesla came in or Vesia came in and let Juan Soto go to second base. He could have crawled to second. How they did not pay any attention to him was beyond me because when Cronenworth got the hit, two runs plated, and who knows, maybe that was the final straw of the Dodgers' back that broke, and they just felt, we're just going to go into the offseason meekly, and here they are, home for the holidays, as their regular season, as great as it was, I'm sure the pressure probably took over, especially once they got to San Diego and they lost that game number three, and here they are on the outside looking in for October, and in quite shocking fashion, I must say. And to a lesser degree, the Atlanta Braves, only because they did win a World Series last year, and we looked at what their trajectory was from pretty much August 6th of last year on to, let's face it, shockingly and inexplicably win a World Series. But when you're 77-34 and 34 from June 1st on, and you steamrolled past the Mets, and we know about the second-to-last series of the year against the Mets and how they took over first place and 
had a week off, and people could look at that layoff, especially for the Dodgers and Padres, to think that they weren't able to get their train on the tracks, they weren't able to get going, and when you think about it, with the Braves, for whatever the reason, it almost seemed from the start, trailing 7-1, and then they had the big comeback that fell short in the ninth inning in Game 1, okay, fine, they got to Zach Wheeler in Game 2, and they won 3-0, and you think all is right in the world when it comes to the Braves, but then they go to Philadelphia, they start Spencer Strider in Game 3, who had 18 games that he hadn't pitched, or in 18 days he had not pitched because he was on the IL, and yes, he was perfect in the first two innings, and then literally imploded after that to where Reese Hoskins is spiking his bat after hitting a three-run homer, which erupted Citizens Bank, and the party began pretty much at that point on, then Bryce Harper hit a two-run homer, six runs in the inning, and from that point on, they never looked back. And even with the World Series championship of last year, it did lessen the blow a little bit. But if you're a Brave fan, you cannot be happy with the way this team performed here in this division series, considering what they did in the second half of the season, them getting a bye, them even winning a game two where you go to Philadelphia, we could get one of the next two. Okay, Aaron is going to pitch. That's going to be a tough chore for them. But there's no excuse for a bullpen game in game number four where Noah Syndergaard pitches three innings and he's a far cry from what he once was in a Met uniform and they just couldn't get anything going offensively. Austin Riley, Michael Harris the second, they had putrid series. Dansby Swanson, for everything they did in the regular season, boy, did they fold like a cheap suit here in October. And I get it. You go up against a team that was a little bit hot as they beat St. Louis the way they did in the wildcard round, and then they come out like gangbusters there in game one. Granted, they hung on for dear life, and even with the Braves winning that game two, you probably thought that this series was going to come back to Atlanta. And whether you're a Brave fan or even a Dodger fan, you didn't even get to see another home game after game two. And now you have a scenario where you have, for the first time in this wild card format, where you have an NLCS or any championship series where you have the five seed going up against the six seed. And with the Padres having home field advantage in the next round. Can't make it up. And give credit to both Philadelphia and San Diego for getting to this point. You want to plead a case for this is what happens when you have those five days off and your season kind of goes off the rails. Well, what does that mean for the Houston Astros? Or even for the Yankees, for that matter, who have a game five, and I'll get to that in a minute. But for at least the National League, you could look and think, whether the pressure got to the Dodgers where they couldn't perform there, especially once they got to San Diego, and even Game 2 for that matter because they did lose that game, or the Braves where they just weren't able to turn on the offense when they needed to once they got to Philadelphia in that small ballpark, and then it was lights out for them. I'm not going to attribute it to the layoff, but you can make an argument for it. As for the American League, The Astros won in a four-game series when it was all said and done because on Saturday they played an 18-inning game to where Jeremy Pena seems like the Astros do not miss a beat. Carlos Correa gone, Jeremy Pena in, and he's all of a sudden a hero. As he hits a home run in the top of the 18th inning, the Mariner fan, I know they got to be just sick to their stomachs knowing that they waited a long time to not only be in the postseason but to even host a playoff game. And even with them down 0-2, we talked about Game 1 and how that just imploded right in front of their eyes with 
a 7-3 lead going into the bottom of the eighth. They gave up two, and then the Jordan Alvarez three-run homer to walk it off. And then Alvarez again with another home run as they took the lead there in the latter part of the game. They end up winning 4-2. And then what could you say? Watching that game there on Saturday was similar to Tampa and Cleveland in the wild card round to where that game went 15 innings. And as we talked about it last week, how that was the longest postseason game going into the 15th inning that was no score. Well, huh, Houston and Seattle said, hold my beer. Because they went 18 innings. They played two full baseball games. So even though the Astros did win in three, but in essence, they won in four games. And now they get to move on. And even though it took two baseball games just to win one and for them to win the division series, but it seemed like the five-day layoff didn't hurt them. And then the Yankees and Guardians, this has been a shock to say the least. And even with last night, the Yankees needing to win in the worst way that the season fell on the right arm of Garrett Cole and he had to come up big. And he did. Let's give him the credit. Now, mind you, it's the Guardians. And that's not to knock what they've done so far this postseason. Because if you would have asked me on Tuesday night, last Tuesday, that the Guardians were going to push the Yankees not only to a Game 5, but to have an elimination game to where the Yankees could have been out in Game 4, I would have said, what are you smoking? And here it was, even after the rainout on Thursday, they... Came from behind where Giancarlo Stan hit the two-run homer to start the game. And I tweeted that, oh, the game's over in the Bronx. You can forget about it. But the Yankees didn't score from that point on. And then they chipped away. Ahmed Rosario hits a home run. Then you had the bloop by Jose Ramirez, who made it to third. And great hustle by him, where most players, they would probably be stuck at first on a routine bloop into shallow left field. But he made it all the way to third. And then next thing you know, two runs later, they win 4-2. And then the heroics on Saturday night by Oscar Gonzalez with another walk-off as he was able to put the bat on the ball, get it through the infield into center field where the Yankees had a 5-3 lead in the ninth. And I get it that Clark Schmidt had to come in the middle of the inning to clean up Wandy Peralta's mess, but he didn't get the job done, which I'm sure the Yankee fan is longing for the days of Mariano Rivera. But we all know those days are long gone. And here it was last night where the spotlight was squarely on Garrett Cole. And again, it's the Guardians. And I don't want to knock them, and I understand that comes across as a knock. And the Yankee fan, they could breathe a sigh of relief. They could know that at least for one start that he showed up and delivered. But if they do make it past this round, obviously the games are going to get bigger and a lot more heightened, but we'll worry about that then. But for right now, Cole saved the Yankee season. And even with them chipping away, it helped to get an early 3-0 lead. Harrison Bader, all of a sudden, is Joe DiMaggio. And even with them coming back to make it 3-2, where Josh Naylor hits the home run. But the Yankees did get a tack-on run with a Giancarlo Stanton sacrifice fly. And the Yankees make it back to the Bronx as the last series standing here in the division series. And what to expect for tonight? I don't even know. I would think the Yankees are going to win. I picked them to win in the sweep. But you know this is going to be a bullpen game. This is going to be one of those games where it's going to pretty much going to be all hands on deck. Minus Garrett Cole, of course. And you would think maybe even Luis Severino. Unless he could probably throw to a batter in a key spot. But this is going to be one of those games where it's going to be kitchen sink. And who knows what we're going to get here. 
as it is, your pitching matchup is going to be Aaron Savali for the Guardians and Jameson Tyon, who did pitch in that 10th inning the other day against the Guardians in Game 2. But you know these guys are going to have short leashes. There's going to be some quick hooks. And again, when you're in a winner-take-all, and you know the Astros right now have their feet up, they're hoping that the Guardians and Yankees have an 18-inning game unto themselves so they can be worn out come Game 1 Wednesday night down at Minimade. I would think the Yankees prevail. I don't know if the Guardians are going to have enough in the tank. Now, they're going to have to get on Tyon early, which is not going out on a limb. Tyon could put up a good performance here, but we all know Tyon, can you trust him 100%? Absolutely not. And Savali, you think the Yankees will probably batter him around a little bit and get in their bullpen? Now, we know the bullpen is better for the Guardians than it is for the Yankees, but... Here in the Game 5, where all the pressure in the world is going to be on both teams, more so the Yankees, because if they do not get out of this round, and with the way things have gone so far this postseason, where we've seen the Braves bye-bye, the Dodgers bye-bye, would you be 100% shocked at the Yankees bye-bye? Now, I know the suits at Fox, they are praying, fingers, arms, legs crossed, etc. Because for the... Final four in baseball to have Phillies, Padres, and granted you have stars on those teams. Bryce Harper, Manny Machado, Juan Soto. So at least you have some players that you can look at if you're the casual sports fan. Houston, you know they're Houston. Fine. The Guardians, I get it. They're the little engine that could, but other than Jose Ramirez, who's been pretty quiet in this postseason, I understand he hit the home run in game one against Tampa, and he had the big hit in the ninth or in the tenth inning to start that rally in Game 2, and he had the other hit in the ninth inning to extend the inning where the heroics from Oscar Gonzalez came a couple batters later. But he hasn't had a big series or put his fingerprints all over this division series. But if the Guardians do move forward, yes, maybe you could rally for them, you could root for them, you'd want to see them go as far as they possibly can considering they're in the biggest drought. In baseball, they haven't won a World Series since 1948. But America's not going to be captivated by the Guardians. They'd want to see Yankees-Astros if you asked man-to-man, woman-to-woman who they would like to see go up in the next round. But with the way it's gone so far, how can you even possibly predict that? I think the Yankees are going to come out alive. I think they're going to move on to the next round. And even if the... Guardians do win. I think they'll be short for the next series. Maybe they win a game. And the Yankees and Astros, that should be a very entertaining series, as we know. That's going to be a, I'm going to say a rivalry renewed only because of their postseason meetings over the years. And we've talked about that ad infinitum here on the podcast. But I think the Astros will probably move on. I'd say the Yankees, six games. They do have the home field. And if it's the Guardians, I'm going to say in five. As for the Phillies and Padres, to me, this is a coin flip. I would think that the Padres, they do have the home field. It's not going to be a home field similar to what you'll see in Philadelphia in the middle portion of the series. But I think the starting pitching is about even, maybe a little bit better to the Padres. Their bullpens, I would think that the Padres have a better back of the end with Hayter, even though he's up and down, but... You want to throw Sir Anthony Dominguez. You want to throw Zach Elfin. 
I don't know if those are guys you can really 100% fully trust. I would think the Phillies have a better lineup with Schwarber, Harper, Hoskins, Castellanos. He could be dangerous, although he's had a bad year. Over Machado, Josh Bell, Soto, Cronenworth, Profar, etc. It's a pretty even series, but I would have to give the edge to the Padres. And I would think that the Padres will probably win a long series. I can see the Phillies winning, though. I can see the Phillies winning in six or the Padres winning in seven. And if I had to flip that coin, I think it will land Padres in seven. And one other baseball note, Bruce Souter, the 1979 NL Cy Young Award winner, he was the one that mastered the split finger fastball pitch who was a reliever for the Cubs, then the Cardinals, later on with the Braves, but by then his best days were behind him. But Suter was a dominant closer, especially when we look at all time. Obviously, Mariano's number one. You want to throw in Trevor Hoffman, okay. Raleigh Fingers. You could even look at a guy like Goose Gossage, but I think Suter was better than Gossage. And he was a guy that threw a pitch that was unhittable and a lot of people tried to emulate and have for the most part after that, but he was the master of it and pretty much the guy who set the world on fire when it came to that pitch, passed away the other day at the age of 69, Hall of Famer, great pitcher, won the 82 World Series with the Cardinals and thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Suter family leaving us way too soon at the age of 69. Now, as I exchange my bat, batting gloves, and spikes for my helmet and shoulder pads as we get through the NFL and college football here, and real quick, before I get to the winners and losers of the week, if you're the Philadelphia Eagles and their fans, you are sitting pretty right now, and Jay Reels is looking like a horse's ass because I picked them as an under at 9.5. I just thought that Jalen Hurts, even with a revamped offense and a very good defense, that 9.5, it was going to go to the very end. I thought that once you got to week 18, they were going to be at 9, and it was just a matter of whether or not they are going to win that last game or not, but here it is, six games in, undefeated, the final or last undefeated team in the sport, and right now you have to think that the NFC is going to go through Philadelphia barring any major injury or collapse, and this team has a very easy schedule from here on out. They currently have a two and a half game lead over the Cowboys. Not that that matters because the team that's sandwiched in between them are the Giants. I'm going to get to them in a second. They're at 5-1, and one, the Giants. The Eagles are 6-0. and oh, And then you also have the Vikings who are 5-1 and one with a two-game lead over the Packers. Really two and a half because they have the tiebreaker against them with the opening day victory against Green Bay. In the NFC South, you have Atlanta and Tampa tied for first place. And then out west... You have the Niners, who stubbed their toe in Atlanta yesterday, and the Rams, boy, they're trying to put together these games with scotch tape and bubblegum, these victories against inferior opponents, and it looks like, at least as of right now, and we know there's still 11 games to go and a lot of season that needs to unfold, but the Eagles are not only looking dominant, and although their game last night, 26-17, not closer than the score indicated. They had a 20 nothing lead. And then the Cowboys started to chip away. But then the Eagles, late. I understand they went for two there with Sirianni. They tried to make it 28-17. And, of course, the people in Vegas, whether it was the over-under or even the point spread for that matter, they looked at that like, ugh. Now we have to wonder whether or not that the two-point conversion was worth it. But be that as it may, 
we look at this Eagle team right now, not with a cakewalk or even with a red carpet, but they certainly have their sights set not only on a one seed but a Super Bowl if they continue to play this way because nobody in the NFC, at least in the regular season, is going to be able to touch them. As crazy as that may sound, but that's the truth. Because Green Bay has not gotten on track. The Rams have certainly been fumbling, bumbling, stumbling. The Niners have been good, but not good enough. Tampa, they're right now in a tizzy. Okay, you still got to wonder about the Giants, who they have not played yet, and they have two matchups against them, and they already put the Cowboys to rest, at least for right now. Other than that, if you're an Eagle fan, you're flying high, sitting pretty, and everything is looking good in the city of brotherly love. Now let's get to my winners and losers. My winners, I'm going to start off with the Buffalo Bills. That was a big game at Arrowhead yesterday, and we talked about this briefly on the podcast Thursday to where they lost their seasons the last two years in Arrowhead, whether it was the championship game two years ago or the divisional classic round there in January. And for them to come out of this game, which when we looked at the whole game, they were the better team. Granted, it was tooth and nail. You had the big interception there by Mahomes late, which propelled the Bills to get themselves in a position to not only win the game, but also win a matchup of tiebreakers down the road to where if the Bills and the Chiefs have the same record, the Chiefs will have to go to Buffalo to play in whatever game that may be, in a divisional round or an AFC Championship game. That's why this game was huge. If they would have lost this game, it would have been bitter. It probably would have stuck with them for a little while because they know that they would have to go back to that building for a third straight year. But as of right now, barring them going beneath them in the standings, the Chiefs, that is, they look like that they have put themselves in a good position, at least for right to second, to where the AFC will pretty much run through Buffalo later in the season. Winner number two are the Atlanta Falcons. I'm going to give them some love only because they beat a Niner team at home yesterday. And granted that when you look at the final score, it was 28-14. And although you could look at it and say, wow, they must have done a number on them. Not in particular because Marcus Mariota only threw for 129 yards. Yes, he did have a couple of TDs. But Jimmy Garoppolo was not good despite the fact that he almost threw for 300 yards. He did have a couple of interceptions on top of that. They were able to run the ball some, but did not muster a lot of offense. They had the classic unis that they wore with the red helmet with the Falcon, old school, Steve Bartkowski, William Andrews, Gerald Riggs, etc. Alfred Jackson, if you remember those early 80s Falcons teams. And here they are, granted that they lost to the Buccaneers the week before, but they're tied at the top of the NFC South. And you got to give it up. This is a team that had the lowest over under win total in the sport, I believe. There were four and a half, and they were tied with probably the Texans, who I think I took also as an under. Off the top of my head, I can't remember my over under picks. But for them to be at four and a half, and all they need is two more wins the rest of the way, that's a great job. And I got to give it up, and it's probably going to be the last time all year that I'll say that they will be one of my winners of the week. And yes, Jet fans, you're probably thinking, what about us? What about the green and white? gangrene, etc. I'm going to give you props because loser number one are the Green Bay Packers. And I understand they could say the Jet fan right now, boo, okay, put it on the Packers and on the Jets. I'll give the Jets some love. But the Packers, back-to-back weeks, not only losing in London to the Giants, but now here to the Jets, 
to where they weren't able to muster up any offense. Yes, the Jets special teams kicked into high gear. Brees Hall has done a phenomenal job there as a running back and what the Jets have been able to do. Zach Wilson didn't do much on offense. What do you have, 110 yards throwing in the air? But when you combine a ground game, stout defense to where they got to Aaron Rodgers four times, Quinnen Williams is finally blossoming into the third overall pick that the Jets did back, what was it, 2018 or 2019? And give it up. The Jets have been more than what anybody could imagine here so far. And I understand they beat the Steelers and they had that miracle win in Cleveland, but sometimes you get those type of games to where they had to come back from the Steeler game where they were down 10 points and Zach Wilson led them down the field and the Dolphins didn't have Tua and they had to use a third-string quarterback. But hey, that's the NFL in 2022 where you're going to get those breaks in the schedule or get breaks with injuries or whatever it may be, but here they are at 4-2, and two, doing excellent and more than what anybody could ever imagine. But with the Packers, I don't know if they're going to get on track here. They're already two and a half games behind in the NFC North. They already look like they're fading fast. And even though it's not time to panic, they're going to make it to the postseason. They're going to be one of the seven teams that are going to represent in the NFC when it comes to the playoffs. But with a receiving core that is inexperienced, and now Randall Cobb is out, who knows for how long, You just wonder, and the defense is overrated if you ask me. I never thought that the Packers, even though they do have talent on the defensive side, but I don't look at them as a stalwart, just a lockdown type of defense. I can't trust them. I never really trusted them when it was all said and done. Just look at last year in the division game against San Francisco. Not to say San Francisco did a lot, and of course their special teams foiled them just as much as their offense did, but when they had to make a play or make a stop, here's Debo Samuel on a third and nine, on a draw play, getting first downs. So that's all you need to know about the Packer defense. But you just ever wonder if they're going to get their season on track here to the point where they're going to be near the top or at the top of the NFC. You already have, as I mentioned, Philadelphia, Minnesota, dare I say even the Giants for that matter, and even the Cowboys ahead of them. So they have a lot of work to do. And for them to lose in Lambeau after coming off of a shocking loss in London... Who knows where the Packers and what their season is going to look like here over the next 11 weeks. And then my second loser is the Cleveland Browns. Here they are with a chance to get to 500, and they did lose to Atlanta the week before. Or excuse me, they actually lost to the Chargers in Atlanta before that to where the Patriots are coming in. Yes, they shot out the Lions the week before. But for them to literally get run over and then Bailey Zappi to throw for 300 yards to have the game that he had And for Nick Chubb not to get on track, and for their running game, which is we all know is very good and above average, well, they certainly look below average against Bill Belichick's defense to the tune of 38-15. to An embarrassing loss at home. The AFC North has come back to the pack to where you have the Bengals who beat the Saints yesterday, and they had the connection of Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase. I'm sure a lot of people in that part of the country, Louisiana, their days at LSU, that looks very familiar because they were able to pull out a 30-26 to win. And then the Ravens, who had another double-digit lead that they could not hold, this time on the road, to the Giants, to where they were able to come away with a 24-20 victory. And the Ravens now have to answer what's gone on there with their season. And they could actually be 6-0 when you think about it. But Lamar Jackson did not play well through a big pick there late. I understand I'm getting a little bit off topic, but I'm on the subject of the AFC North here, but for the Browns, for them to put up that type of stinker in their building, and the Patriots, they're not the Patriots of 
four, five, six years ago. All right, you could lose to the Patriots at home, I understand, but for Zappy Bailey to look like Tom Brady and for Ramondre Stevenson to look like Corey Dillon back in the 04-05 Patriots seasons, inexcusable if you ask me if you're a Brown fan. And now Kevin Stefanski has to go back to the drawing board, and I believe he has the Ravens, whether they go to Baltimore or they are hosting them, next up on the schedule, this could be a time in Cleveland where everybody's rooting for the Guardians, I get that, but the fan base will start to wonder whether or not Kevin Stefanski is the answer at coach. And while we're at it, even though I wrapped up my loser segment, can we get rid of the Thursday night game? I cannot stand the Thursday night game, and not based on what's happened here over the last two weeks where we had that eyesore of a game between Indianapolis and Denver, and then even worse, when we didn't think it could be topped, Washington and Chicago. And it's not as if you have a barn burner this coming week with Arizona and New Orleans, so let's not get crazy there. But not to say the NFL is going to scrap this. They're never going to do it. We know how much money these games are, and Amazon's paying for the rights which is a pretty penny, and you know the NFL, they won't even thumb up a dirty red cent when it comes to printing money in this league. But boy, these games are just god-awful to watch. And I won't even talk about the Commanders winning 12-7. to Lump that game with Indianapolis and Denver and put that in a vault somewhere and just keep it locked and lose the key. Because those Thursday night games are, ugh, are just god-awful. As for the rest of the schedule yesterday, the Vikings, as I mentioned, 5-1. and one. You got to give them some credit. I understand they beat bad teams along the way, and their one loss was to Philadelphia. And even with Miami, and with the third-string quarterback, and although they had to seal the deal late with a Dalvin Cook 53-yard touchdown to extend their lead, but they are 5-1. and one. They are looking good there in the NFC, and right now, currently cruising in first place in the NFC North. And Miami, they're trying to put the pieces together with Tua Tagovailoa, who, for all intents and purposes, has been healthy and could be cleared to play, but they decided to put him on ice for another week, and why not? Let's see if he's going to be primed and ready to go this coming week, where the Dolphins were once 3-0, and and now they've leveled off to 3-3. and Carolina and the Rams, do I even need to go there? The Rams have just not been good at all. This was a similar game to the performance that they had earlier this year in Arizona where they won 20-12, to and then here it is, a 24-10 ho-hum kind of yawn type of game where Carolina, with interim coach Steve Wilkes, had to tell Robbie Anderson to get to the locker room as he was fighting with the coaches on the sideline and then being disrupted to the point where he got kicked to the locker room. Uh, just a mess down there in Carolina with Matt Rule being fired earlier in the week. And... The Rams, they are not looking good at all as they defend their Super Bowl championship. Arizona-Seattle, another snooze of a game where the Seahawks are now 3-3 three and three and the Cards 2-4. and four. There's nothing really to report there. I'm just going to move on. Tampa and Pittsburgh, this was a shock to say the least. And this is with Kenny Pickett out as he was concussed there in the second half. But he was able to make some plays early on. The defense is what stood up for the Steelers as they gave up a late touchdown to Leonard Fournette. And then they were able to thwart the two-point conversion as the Buccaneers were going for the tie. But who would have thought? Mitchell Trubisky was the guy who came in, did very well, extended drives, completed third and 11s, third and 16s to Chase Claypool, 
even with his legs to get a first down as they moved the chains and the Steelers shockingly beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at home 20-18. to And their defense, obviously no T.J. Watt, even Minka Fitzpatrick, but guys like Malik Reed stepped up, even Devin Bush with the two-point conversion swatting that, which would have, like I mentioned, tied the game, and who knows where that would have turned at that point. And at least for one week, the Steelers don't look as bad as we talked about last week, possibly being one of the worst teams in the sport. And for Tampa, they just lick their wounds and see where their season goes as they're right now one of those teams similar to Green Bay, kind of hanging in the balance, wondering what direction they're going to be headed off to. Now, we understand there's still 11 games to go. This isn't week 13 where they're 7-6 and six or 7-5 and five and they're still trying to find their footing. But before you know it, it's going to be week 8, week 10, week 12, and we're going to get toward an end of a season to where let's see how well they play from here on out. And then to round out the schedule, you had Indianapolis beat Jacksonville, where Matt Ryan had his best and biggest game in a Colt uniform. And the Jaguars, you have to say to yourself, not only if you're a Jaguar fan, but even if you're a follower of the NFL to know that Jacksonville was 2-1 and one and had that big win against the Chargers on the road. And now, here they are to where they have lost three in a row. All right, Indianapolis, they owed them considering Jacksonville shut them out in Week 2. But for them to not play well here, for them to, I'm not going to say not show up, but with a lot of expectations and people thought that, hey, maybe Jacksonville could be that sneaky team with an AFC South that has been subpar even though the Titans, who had a bye yesterday, have righted the ship a little bit and now are over 500, And now with the Colts, they're at 3-2-1 after their dreadful start. But for Jacksonville, a lot more was expected after that game in L.A. against the Chargers to where they lost to Philadelphia on the road. All right, that happens. But they lose that home to Houston, inexplicable to say the least. And then now go to Indianapolis and lose here just doesn't, Put a good taste in your mouth if you're a Jaguar fan, if you're Doug Peterson, knowing that you've made some strides. And I understand that you made the game close. It was 34-27. But for Trevor Lawrence, even when you look at his numbers at the end of the day, he was 20-22 for and you think, oh, wow, big game. No, he only threw for 165 yards. He did have a touchdown, but you could say that a lot of it, not to say that it was in mop-up because the Colts, although did have Pretty much, I'm not going to say a stranglehold because the Jaguars did have the lead late where Christian Kirk had a touchdown pass there late with about 2.45 to go. But for them not to be able to seal the deal and then on top of that to get the late touchdown where Alec Pierce got into the end zone 17 seconds to go and they tacked on a two-point conversion, for them not to win that game and at least to feel better about themselves after losing those Previous two games, just does not sit well if you're the 14 Jaguar fans that are out there. So that pretty much wraps up your week six. Very interesting week, to say the least, for everything that I mentioned. And tonight you have Denver playing against the LA Chargers, which you would think would be a good game. But Denver has not really been very impressive here over the first five weeks of the season. And the Chargers can be up and down. But you would think it would be an exciting game, two AFC West opponents, and let's see where the chips fall. But other than that, you got to wonder about the Packers and what they've done here in this early part of the season. Same for the Buccaneers. Like I mentioned, the Eagles flying high. 
Cowboys take a little bit of a hit, but you think Dak Prescott will be back. And it looks like for all intents and purposes, he will be back for this upcoming game. I believe it's against the Lions, if I'm not mistaken. I know they play the Lions and Bears back-to-back, so it is the Lions this coming week. And then the Jets and Giants flying high. I know you don't like Sauce Gardner putting on the cheese head, and I think Alan Lazard took exception to that. That's a rookie mistake. You don't do things like that, especially in that town with that franchise, etc. But a very intriguing week six, to say the least. And now as we segue to college football, you want to talk about intriguing. Boy, this past Saturday, you had a lot going on, and it all highlights with the Alabama-Tennessee game. Quickly, I'll start with Michigan-Penn State, because that was the first game of the day where Michigan took care of Penn State. No bones about it. Michigan is looking very good, very formidable, as they're on a mission to probably get back to a college football Final Four. And we'll get into them later on as they dispose of the Nittany Lions there, 41-17 in Ann Arbor. But with Bryce Young back in the fold, under center for the Crimson Tide, and not skipping a beat as he was 35 for 52 for 455 yards and two touchdowns. But the crazy thing is, is that Hendon Hooker, the quarterback of Tennessee, pretty much matched him. Now, granted, he didn't throw for about 450, but he did throw for 385 yards and five touchdowns, all five to Jalen Hyatt, who had six receptions for 207 yards. And this game, which looked like Tennessee had in control their midway second quarter, they were up 28-10, and you knew this was going to be a high-octane offensive type of game. But for the Crimson Tide to come back, and you knew that they were going to be heard from, and they did to the point where it was just back and forth, They were able to tie the game early third quarter where Jameer Gibbs, who's been very impressive in his own right, with a 26-yard touchdown run, and they even got a two-point conversion to tie the game. And then from there on out, it was back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then it just all boiled down to where the Crimson Tide had a seven-point lead there late, and the defense, they couldn't stop a nosebleed. Jalen Hyatt with another touchdown, and then, of course, to cap it off with the 40-yard field goal to end the game as time expired for the... Tennessee Volunteers, a team that when you go back to the years of Peyton Manning, and yes, with T. Martin, they did win a national championship, but now Tennessee has catapulted themselves into the top four and the discussion for the college football playoff as they're ranked number three in the nation as of right this moment, with Georgia number one, Ohio State number two, and then Michigan right behind Tennessee. So now Alabama drops to number six, and Now we can start to talk about whether or not Alabama is going to be part of the postseason. Yes, there's still plenty of games to be played. Yes, there's still a lot of college football that we have to watch and see how this is going to play out. But as I mentioned on Thursday's pod, I'll mention now, if by some reason Alabama does not beat Georgia, and that's the likelihood, of course, as we try to look into the crystal ball, what, six weeks out? to where Alabama loses to Georgia in an SEC title game, and with two losses under their belt, they are not going to make it to the big dance. They will be out. And mind you, Tennessee, in three weeks, has a matchup at Georgia, which is going to be ginormous. Huge, to say the least. But we won't worry about that until then. But as of right now, Alabama, they have had a tough season to date. Granted that they just had their first loss, but we know about the games in the state of Texas to where they barely got out of Texas when they played the Longhorns with a last-second field goal, and the same with A&M just the previous week in Tuscaloosa. 
to now Alabama could be a team where they're going to need some breaks. They're going to need a couple of teams to fall along the wayside. And we have seen that here with a couple that were below them in the rankings. And even though destiny is still in their hands, because if they do win the SEC championship game, they will make it into the college football playoff. But it's looking dubious at this very moment. Because unless Tennessee could beat Georgia, which would be huge when you think about it, but we all know that if Georgia does beat Tennessee and it's a home game for them, and if somehow, some way, Alabama does lose and Tennessee continues to win, you're not going to see Alabama in the Final Four. That's all there is to it. So even though, again, Destiny is in their own hands, but they may need some help here along the way. The other two games of note on Saturday, USC gets their first loss of the year against Utah, and we knew this was going to be a tough game. Utah, they've been very competitive, although they lost some tough games here so far in this college football season. But to think, not only did this game go right down to the wire, but the Utes, who scored a late touchdown with 48 seconds to go, and then the quarterback, Cameron Rising, what a great name that is, who had a huge game in his own right, was 30 for 44, 415 yards, threw for two touchdowns, and also rushed for three on top of that, including the game-tying and now two-point conversion ceiling win where they took the lead for the first time there at the very end, and I know that's a brutal loss for USC. It could happen to anybody, but when you had the lead the whole game, and granted it was tooth and nail, back and forth, yes, at two points of the game, they did have a 14-point lead, but the Utes came back, and it was all on the shoulders and legs of their quarterback. And just a phenomenal job when you think about how the Utes, like I mentioned, they lost that first brutal game early in the year against Georgia, which, okay, you can understand that that was going to be the case, knowing that you were going up against the defending college football national champions. And then later on, when you lose to UCLA just a week prior, and you think that, not to say the season is lost, because you know they're going to make it to a bowl appearance, but if any discussion was going to be made about them maybe even creeping into the discussion of the college football playoff, and not to say that this win does that for them, but it is a huge win. As for USC, obviously this is going to put them a few steps back and out of the running for a national title, considering what we just talked about with Tennessee and Alabama, and you got to throw in a couple other teams in the mix. Then you have Oklahoma State and TCU, and TCU has really been on a come up here over the last few weeks. And Oklahoma State is another top 10 team that has fallen by the wayside, and we've seen a lot of that here over the last few weeks. But for the Horn Frogs, that they are now undefeated and will move up in the rankings, as we'll go through that in a second. But for Oklahoma State, who had a 14-point lead heading into the fourth quarter, were unable to make some stops. The Horn Frogs were able to tie it up and then go into overtime. And then the next thing you know, in the overtime, even with the first overtime, both teams scoring touchdowns with Okie State coming back down 37-30 to and were able to tie it then. And then give it up, even with the field goal in the second overtime by the Cowboys. It wasn't enough because the Horn Frogs were able to get not only the game-winning score, but the game-sealing score from a standpoint of Oklahoma State getting their first loss of the year, them taking a few steps back in the top 10. And I know that's going to be a tough one for Oklahoma only because, Oklahoma State, I should say, only because we saw what happened earlier in the day 
whether you're Alabama, even USC. And as we take a look at the college football lay of the land when it comes to the rankings, as we mentioned with the top four, once again, Georgia, Ohio State, now Tennessee, number three, and Michigan. And you also have to think whether or not with Ohio State and Michigan, they're going to cancel each other out when it comes to this college football playoff because as much of a mission that Michigan is playing with right now, Ohio State, they're going to host the Wolverines Thanksgiving weekend, and that's going to be for pretty much all the marbles because one of those two teams, just like we saw last year, undefeated going into that game, and Michigan were able to prevail in Ann Arbor to beat Ohio State, and they were obviously out of the competition when it came to the college football playoff. But now, with this year unfolding, and it looks like it's going to be a collision course with those two teams most likely being undefeated, one of those two teams are going to cancel each other out, as you would think. Or as you'd know, unless a miracle happens with some of the teams that are beneath them. So anyway, as I was mentioning, with those top four, then you have Clemson five, Alabama drops to six, as we mentioned, Ole Miss Moves up a couple of spots to seven. TCU goes from 13 to eight. UCLA cracks the top 10. And then Oregon now cracks the top 10 as we round out the top teams in the nation. And my apologies if I mentioned Utah earlier beating or losing to Georgia. I got my teams mixed up in my conferences. Actually, Oregon lost week one at Georgia where Utah lost at Florida. That I should have known. That's my error. So mea culpa there. So Utah, with their win against USC and their two losses that I mentioned, not Georgia week one, it was at Florida, which we knew was going to be a tough task considering they had to go to the swamp, humidity, the heat, etc., as they lost a close game down in Gainesville. So the college football season, certainly going to be interesting from here on out, and obviously we'll be here to discuss it, and we'll see come Thursday what the schedule will look like for a week number eight in college football. All right, as I lace up my high tops to get to an NBA season, which will tip off tomorrow night, and this is one season, I'll say this right from the start, that I'm not going to say it's highly anticipated, and of course we could hear all of the pundits talk about this season and how it's pretty much going to be up in the air with a lot of different storylines, things of that nature. I understand you could say that for many seasons, But considering this is the NBA, and when we look back in the past, you can even maybe go back 20 years, where we look at this league as so top-heavy that you could only pick but maybe three or four teams to win a championship. And as we've seen, whether you're the Lakers of the early 2000s, the Spurs of the mid-2000s, the early part of the 20-teens, whether it was the Miami Heat, the Spurs, the Warriors... The Cavaliers, it seemed like those were the only teams that were in the finals over the past two decades. And now, which leads to storyline number one, you could argue that you could have maybe up to 10 teams win a title this year. That's right, 10. That's a third of the league, which says a lot because, as I just mentioned, for the last two decades, you could count on one hand, let alone if you only had three fingers, you could probably pick which three teams would be the favorite to win a title. Where here you could actually use all 10 fingers on both hands to probably pick out of a hat who could win the NBA Finals. And it would go as such. Boston, Brooklyn, Philly, Milwaukee, Miami, and that's just in the East. And even five out West. 
Golden State, Phoenix, the Clippers, Denver, and you know what? I guess just based on reputation, etc., the Lakers. I could say the Mavericks. You want to throw them as the 11 team? You can, but I don't know if the Mavericks, even with Luka Doncic, and a lot of people think that he could be the MVP this year, but even with him, and they did make it to a conference final last year, I get it, but to me, I look at them on the outside as far as being one of those teams to win a championship. Not get to a final, but to win the whole thing. So I look at those 10 teams as my first storyline into this 2022-23 NBA season. As far as other storylines with teams, we could talk about Golden State defending their title, and especially with the Draymond Green incident, who I believe is going to be a free agent after this year. Who knows what his mood, behavior, attitude is going to be like to possibly permeate throughout this team as they try to defend their title. And then Jordan Poole did get his big payday, four years, $140 million. So congratulations to him. And even Andrew Wiggins, four for 107. And even with the owner coming out, talking about the luxury tax, saying that, yeah, it is what it is for the most part. Does that mean he's also going to bring Draymond Green back, who's going to be, what, 32, 33 years of age? And you're going to have to give him somewhere in that ballpark unless he's going to take a discount, which you would think at this stage of his career he's not going to do that. So who knows how that's going to cast a cloud over a season which is going to be, let's say it, a lot of people are going to be gunning for this team knowing that they won a title and that they're going to be one of the favorites to come out of the West and certainly not going to sleep on anybody when the Warriors come to a city near you. The Brooklyn Nets obviously is going to be a big story. Can they stay healthy and stable for a whole year to make a run for a title? The big thing is healthy and stable. The Clippers, can this finally be the year that the Clippers take over LA and win an NBA title? They have a healthy Kawhi Leonard. For all intents and purposes, Paul George. Bring in John Wall. If he stays healthy, that's a very good trio. Who knows? Big things for the Clippers this coming year. The Suns, to erase the bad taste from a Game 7 last year at home to Dallas to where Chris Paul scored one point and they got blown out by 40. And then they're going to have to wait to the second round to show and prove. So they can have another big regular season like they did last year where they won 64 games. They can win 55, 60 games this year, but it's not going to matter until they get to the second round. You would think whomever they play in the first round of the playoffs next year, they will dispose of them, but it's from the second round on to see where the Sun season will really lie and how this team is going to bounce back from that just awful defeat. The Celtics... Speaking of clouds, Ime Odoka, we know he's not there, but will Joe Mazzulla be the guy that make people forget the disgrace coach? Can the Celtic team, who has the most over-under win totals based by Vegas in the sport, 53.5, can they get themselves back on track to the point where they could get to a final and win it based on what took place last spring and early part of the summer? And then you have the Lakers, and just with this particular angle, LeBron James being... 1,325 points behind Kareem Abdul-Jabbar for number one all-time in scoring, be it his 20th season in the league, the expectations for the team. Westbrook looks like early reports may have him coming off the bench, as we saw late in this preseason. I don't know if that's going to sit well with Westbrook, maybe with Darvin Ham and just a collection of the minds meeting to say, hey, let's try this out. Maybe this will be best for our team early on. Who knows? But Westbrook, we all know he's a firecracker. Pair him with Patrick Beverly, as we talked about weeks ago. You know, when things are going good and things are flying high, of course, you would expect 
it to be all coconuts and palm trees. But when there's a bit of adversity, when you have a little bit of a losing streak, when the tempers start to flare in the locker room, who knows? But the Lakers are going to be a team that everybody's going to talk about because of LeBron, 20th year. He's close to surpassing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the health of Anthony Davis. Can this team bounce back from winning 33 games last year? All that. And as we take a look throughout the league, I know that the East is going to be very top-heavy with those aforementioned teams. But you got to wonder, can Atlanta bounce back from a dreadful season even though they salvaged it with the playing game in the tournament where they were able to make it into the playoffs but they did lose to the Heat there in the first round on the exploits of what they did the year before when they made it to a conference final can they bounce back and now with the DeJounte Murray in the mix can they make some hay there in the East speaking of the Cavaliers as they bowed out losing to Brooklyn and Atlanta in the playing tournament now with Donovan Mitchell to go along with Evan Mobley Jared Allen, Darius Garland, could they be a sleeper? I don't want to say dark horse team, but a team that could also make some waves in the East amongst the Giants being the Nets, Bucks, Sixers, Heat, etc. Other than that, you have a big drop-off, whether you're a young and up-and-coming Piston team that is still a few years away. The Pacers trying to put the pieces together there. Orlando, also a young team that could be on the come up too in the years to come with all the draft picks and what they've been able to do here the past couple of of off seasons. Wizards, Hornets, you don't really expect much. And even the Raptors for that matter, maybe with Nick Nurse and they're very resourceful. Maybe they're a team that could steal around in the postseason, but can they go far? Who knows? And then out West... I know it's going to be all about the T-Wolves and the big trade that they made this offseason with Rudy Gobert to go along with Carl Anthony Towns, Anthony Edwards to make themselves formidable there out west. That goes along with the Denver Nuggets that will have Jamal Murray back from the ACL and you think that they could now be full and healthy to see what they could do as they could try to push themselves into the championship discussion with the two-time reigning MVP Nikola Jokic. Portland with Damian Lillard back. Not to expect much, and I'll talk about them in a little bit there. Oklahoma, Utah, they're two teams that are rebuilding and trying to see what they'll be in four to five years from now. We talked about the Clippers. To me, they're not really a storyline only because we know throughout the course of the regular season they're going to take their days off. They're not going to be a team that's, yes, they're going to be on everybody's radar, But we know that even with the full recovery by Kawhi Leonard and Paul George always has his nicks and bruises, especially with his shoulders, and we don't know how many games they're going to play. Are they going to play 60 together, 65, 70? You would hope as an NBA fan they would play at least 70 games together, but with Kawhi, you never know. The first back-to-back, he's going to play the first game, and the second one, ah, I'm going to take off load management as he's the poster boy for that. So... Yes, although they're going to be right there in the discussion, but I don't look at them as a team that, oh, we're going to have to really zero in and focus in on on a day-to-day basis. Yes, if Kawhi's going to take these days off and not play a full schedule, which we know that's not going to be the case, but that's something that we will certainly pay attention to and see how that's going to unfold. Same for the Suns, as we talked about there just a minute ago. The Pelicans with... Zion Williamson, and even though he's been 
raring to go come training camp, but he did suffer an ankle injury late. Who knows if that's going to hinder him here in the early part of the season, but that's a team a lot of people are going to look at. The Mavericks, as I talked about, with Luka Doncic taking it to the next level as far as being an MVP in this league. The Grizzlies, they, I'm sure, are chopping at the bit knowing that they had a huge regular season and it fizzled out in the second round against Golden State, especially not having John Morant. But I'm sure that they're going to be primed and say, hey, what about us? And it's funny because when I talked about those teams that you would think would be part of the discussion as far as the NBA Finals, I did not put the Memphis Grizzlies there. Why? You would think that they would take the next step maybe to get to a conference final, but I still think that they are a year away. And it's not to say they can't make it to a conference final or even an NBA final. But you have those other teams ahead of them that have been through the battles, that have been through a lot of these wars, that know pretty much what it takes to get there, even if it's a team like Denver who's never made it to a final, or even the Clippers for that matter. But the expectations are so high in those cities and with those teams that all the focus is going to be on them more so than the Grizzlies and what they did last year. But I would still think the Grizzlies will have a big year ahead of them and how far they get into the postseason remains to be seen. Now let's get to my NBA over-under win totals for the year. You know, as I usually do, pick three teams, whether the overs or the unders, based on what Vegas has put out there for this upcoming season. My overs, I'm going to start off with Cleveland 47.5. Now, I understand it can be a little bit tricky because, as we talked about just with Memphis a minute ago, they're playing in a conference that is very top-heavy, a lot of big teams, a lot of good teams. But I would think, based on what happened last year and how their season ended, and they had a very good season despite the fact them falling short, of making it to the final eight, but bringing in Donovan Mitchell, who will provide a lot of leadership, and even though he hasn't won a thing in Utah when he was a member of the Jazz, but I think that's going to be a terrific upgrade to go along with those young guys, with a young core, and 47 and a half, I think they're going to be right about it at that number. I could see them maybe winning 49, maybe even 50. Now, you could even pick this as an under because of the expectations, and even though they snuck up on a lot of people last year, but I would think... Hope is eternal in Cleveland. I'm going to, uh, it's a tough one, but you know what? I'm going to put some belief in them. I'm going to pick them as an over, number one. Number two, I'm going to pick Denver. Based on what I mentioned before about having Jamal Murray back into the mix, and if Michael Porter Jr. keeps his head on straight, I get it that Aaron Gordon is overrated, but if he's consistent, that's a big plus to this team. You want to throw in Bones Highland. Contavious Caldwell-Pope is a good role guy, and he's won a title. So they won 48 last year, and the number's 49.5 with the reigning two-time MVP. On top of that, I would think that they're going to not only push 50, but get past that. They're my second over. My third over, and I'm going to bring them up, why not, the Memphis Grizzlies. Because of what happened last year, I'm sure a lot of people aren't looking at them to have another big regular season or even get deep into the postseason. I know they could be not necessarily a sexy pick, Because a lot of people may look at Golden State or may look at the Clippers or a top echelon team out west to make it to a final. But I'm sure with what happened there last year, losing in five games to the Warriors, even though they were undermanned and depleted there, losing Morant at the tail end of that series. But I think that they're going to have a good bounce back year. I don't know. This could be a scenario where maybe they kind of feel their way over these first few weeks or maybe have a point of the season where they hit that low. But I think Memphis, 48.5, that's a good number. They surpassed that beyond and a lot more last year. So I would think they'll do the same this year. Those are my three overs. As for my unders, 
I'm going to pick Portland at 39 and a half as an under. I know Damian Lillard is going to be back, but their second option after Damian Lillard is Anthony Simons. And Simons is a very good player, productive, good offensive player. But other than that, all right, you want to say Jeremy Grant? He could put up some big numbers. He's done that on bad teams. Now he's going to have to lay off just a little bit. He's going to be relied to put up a lot of scoring and put up points, of course. But with Josh Hart and Yusuf Nurchich and even with Gary Payton II, yes, there's some talent there. But I just think, can they be a 41 team even with Damian Lillard? And he's coming off that ab injury, which you think he'll be 100% healthy, ready to go. But I don't know. Portland, even with Lillard there, and who knows if there's going to be any rumblings about a trade, even though he signed this mega extension where he's going to get $60 million in the years to come. And that's annual, not $60 million overall. I'm going to pick Portland as an under 39 and a half. And I hate to pick on this team, but this is an easy one, I would think. You never know with these picks, but Utah, 24 and a half is an under. Obviously, no Rudy Gobert. Obviously, no Spida, Donovan Mitchell. Both of those guys are gone. Not a lot to work with if your new coach, Will Hardy. They're rebuilding this team from the bottom up. Yes, they got a ton of draft capital from those two trades, but... They are going to be a team that's going to mire in losing throughout the whole year. So I'm picking them as an under. And my final under, and I got to roll the dice here a little bit too, whether it's with Cleveland as an overrolling the dice or even maybe with Memphis to a certain degree. I'm going to pick Phoenix under 52.5. The team is a little bit older, number one. Yes, you do have Devin Booker. Yes, you brought back DeAndre Ayton. The situation with Jay Crowder, who knows? Not that he's a big time player, but he's a good role player on that team. And they do have other guys, the campaigns of the world, the Cam Johnsons. I get it. But considering that they went to a final two years ago, they were up two love in the series and lost. And last year flamed out in that game seven against Dallas. That's not to say they're going to have a terrible regular season. They're not going to be 42 and 40. And who knows? They may even eclipse that number because that's not a big number. But I could see Phoenix stumbling out of the blocks a little bit. Who knows if there's going to be any type of turmoil inside as we've seen in the past with Chris Paul led teams that maybe he starts to get tuned out a little bit and I'm not trying to predict that or say that's going to happen but if the Suns do not get off to a hot start like they have the last couple of years I'm sure it's going to be an uphill battle for this team to get to 52 and a half and they probably will beat that but again I'm going to roll the dice I could have picked a couple other teams but I'm going to pick on Phoenix here as an under and that's why I'm going to round out my over-unders with Phoenix under 52.5. So again, overs. Cleveland 47.5, Denver 49.5, Memphis 48.5, and a lot of these teams are right around that mix. And then after that, they just bottom out with the Orlandos, the Oklahoma Cities, uh, teams like that where the Sacramento Kings are in the 30s, and I didn't want to go there, so I kind of wanted to stay somewhere in the middle. But I did pick Utah as an under. Okay, fine. But also... Portland 39.5, as well as Phoenix, as I mentioned, 52.5. Those are my unders as the NBA tips off tomorrow. As we now segue into the fall and winter sports with hockey well underway and now the NBA starting. It's great to be a sports fan here in one of the best sports months out of the year. That'll do it, my good people. Another episode just about in the books. As always, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for listening to your boy, Wax Poetic on everything that's happening in the world of sports. If you haven't done so, please subscribe, rate, review this podcast on wherever you get your podcasts. Throw me a few stars, write a review. I greatly appreciate it. Your participation, not only that, but your 
listenership, if there's such a word, does not get taken for granted. It is vital to make sure that this podcast gets out there. So take a screenshot of it, send it to me, send it to your friends, the sports fan in your life. Once again, I thank you very much for that. If you want to hit me up on any of my social media accounts, TikTok, Instagram, my Facebook fan page, all at the J Reels Podcast. On Twitter, J Reels One, just the number, or the old fashioned way, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. Send your questions, comments, criticism, praise, suggestions. I'll be more than happy to follow up. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. P is in Paul, A T is in Tom, R E O N is in Nancy. Oh, and by the way, how could I forget my NBA Finals prediction halfway through? This closing out of the podcast, I'm picking, believe it or not, drum roll please, Brooklyn over the LA Clippers in seven, and the big key is going to be Ben Simmons, believe it or not, defensively against Kawhi or PG-13. I can't believe I forgot that. So anyway, to go back to that, my apologies for not giving you my NBA Finals prediction. So there you have it. So back to... Patreon.com, the J Reels Podcast, whatever you want to put forth, I would greatly and sincerely appreciate it because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. This is what I love to talk about. Sports is in the blood. It's in the DNA. It's here to stay. I'm not going anywhere. I plan to be here for plenty more podcasts as long as the good Lord has me here on his green earth because whether you do or do not know, my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critiques, praise, passion, fire, energy for anything and everything. That goes on in the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing, octagon, you name it, is unlike any other. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx to Southeast to South Central to South Pacific and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby.